This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. We've got Naomi Alderman in today. She's nice. She's very nice, and I run into her everything, so it'll be really nice to meet her properly and be able to talk to her about things. Yeah, yeah we can good. like pick her brains about her novels, and mm-hmm. she's just got a brand new one out. Um, she she ticks both boxes uh, of Shifran's top guests in that she is both <laughs> Jewish and a writer on the Guardian. Yeah, so that's good. We've got to her page in the Guardian magazine now. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, she's yeah G two, isn't it? And I think we've got some more Chinese snacks. Liam Wickens sent them in. Last week we had uh, we had the savoury course. This week is our is our sweet course of Chinese mm. snacks. So that'd be nice. So Naomi Alderman is with us today. Naomi, you are. Uh, in the amazing position of this very evening, getting ready to hear your your uh, last book read out as the book of bedtime on Radio Four. It's true. It's very exciting. I'm going to be having a pajama party this evening oh. for my friends to come over. We're going to drink cocoa, possibly cocoa with rum in it. Okay. And and yes, I haven't heard it. I haven't heard the recording. I don't know what music they're using. I don't haven't seen the uh, abridgment of it because the book is about ninety thousand words. What's it and uh, it's called, oh yes, my novel is called The Lessons. Um, there's a copy of it sitting on the table in front of me, so I forgot that people who listen to a podcast won't be able to see that. <laughs> so yeah, I haven't heard anything, haven't seen the abridgment. Uh, I know it's being read out by Rory Kinnear, uh, an actor who was, he was at Oxford actually at the same time as me, so it's all quite perfect because it's an Oxford-based novel. Mm. Yeah, and uh, the novel, The Lessons, is about 90,000 words, and they have to abridge it down to about 20,000, mm. so I don't know what they're going to lose. Oh, mm. Some of the sex, apparently, is gone. Oh. <laughs> but it's a book at bedtime. You should anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's about Oxford, kind of. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's set in Oxford. It's about a group of students at Oxford and what happens to them after they leave, which is inevitably tragic and disastrous. Um, they start out quite uh, privileged. At least one of them is very privileged and wealthy. They all end up living in his house uh, for free. Um, and kind of slightly leeching off his money and his privilege, mm-hmm. um, and it's re- it's all, it's about friendship and the limits of friendship. Um, one of these characters, one of this group of friends, uh, really buggers his life up quite badly over the course of the novel. Just slowly but surely self destructs, as sometimes people do, mm-hmm. and his friends try to save him um, to ver- in varying degrees in various ways and so it's about partly it's about whether you can actually save somebody who is bent on self-destruction and whether you can save anyone in general and therefore it's also about Christianity and whether the image of somebody saving somebody else is actually a really useful paradigm mm. uh, so yeah yeah, I bring a bit of religion into it get a bit of religion in there that's what I like to, so, what, yeah. to what extent is it in saying it's set in Oxford and you were, you were at Oxford um, to what extent is it sort of Autobiographical. Are there characters in it who are based on people that you knew in Oxford? Or is it? Uh, I think if, if. Was your experience as sort of wrought with tragedy? <laughs> 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 Secretly. <laughs> <laughs> are you a gay man? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm secretly a gay man. Yes. Right. I am. Yeah. I am a gay man in a straight woman's body. <laughs> what did you study? I studied mostly philosophy. Which college? Uh, I was at Lincoln, okay. which is a little one in the middle, famous mostly for its good food. Nice. Uh, yes. Good place to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good choice. Even though I was very kosher at that point and could not sample many of the delights of the food, mm. nonetheless, one thing I could have was smoked salmon, and they used to bring it down from me from their salmon smokery. Oh. <laughs> Wow, a with his own salmon smokery. It's another world, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I went to Portsmouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do they not have their own salmon smokery? Oh, I'm in the I'm which is a very right-wing mm. Jewish newspaper, uh, which said that my novel was a gross contribution to the realms of sordid literature. Oh, lovely. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Is that, was that intended as a compliment? It's really good. And, and I had one from the Nazis. I was on Stormfront, and I had, I had a oh, quote from the neo-Nazis saying, novel proves that Jews are biologically driven to corrupt even their own. Wow, that's yeah. brilliant. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, t-shirt material there. <laughs> that's amazing. That's awesome. Did you get much positive press? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly it was positive. Okay. Well, I won awards for that novel. You did you know? win awards, didn't I won, you? I won blooming awards. Yeah. But, uh, Young Writer of the Year, winner of the Orange Prize for New Writers. I did. New man. You had some good reviews um, already, haven't you, for this one? I saw a couple in the, the in the Independent and the Independent on Sunday. Yeah. Two different ones. Over <laughs> <laughs> two days. <laughs> I have. I, I have to say, I've had my friends like um, doing a bit of poison tasting on the on the reviews for me to tell me whether or not to read them because uh, it's a bit of a it's a bit to. of an emotional time. This, mm, you know. Yeah, and I remember the first novel when when disobedience. See, I've learned. I have learned. So when disobedience was published, I read all the reviews the moment they came out. I constantly googled myself, yeah. and it was just it was just so stupid. Yeah. Like you can read a, a, a review that is really a great review, and what you remember are the two lines, which are always an obligatory two lines where you go, mm. "Well, but this novel suffers from a blah blah blah." Mm. And you know, like when I write reviews, I know that you have to put those two lines in mm. where you go. Oh. You look balanced if everything was. was yeah, strong, it it, be fair, would exactly. It? Even yeah. if you love the novel, there's always something you can say, and you kind of, I mean, you know, you kind of want to point out to readers who might not like it mm. to say, well, if if you don't like this sort of book, you won't like this sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, but. Uh, uh, if lesbianism is a bugbear, <laughs> don't read this novel. Yeah. If you hate Jews, if you dislike lesbians, or whatever, you know, or I don't know, if you, if, you know, there's always something. There's always something to say. Um, when 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 disobedience was published, a friend of mine sent me a GK quest a GK Chesterton quote um, about reviews, where he says the trouble with reviews is that most of them read something like. This is a very good plum pie, but there is no taste of salmon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it is exactly true, but those are always the bits that I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I can still quote off by heart the last line of my really vicious review from the Jewish Chronicle. Mm. Even more vicious than the Jewish Tribune, who just said that it was a gross contribution to the realms of sordid <laughs> literature, which, as you say, is a double-edged sword, you know? Yeah. Is the Chronicle a bit more liberal, a bit more left-leaning? The, chron- yeah, the, the Chronicle tribute? is a sort of middle-of-the-road, you know, they report on when the community in Stanmore has held a bring-and-buy sale. Okay, mm. so it's like, it's like the, the kind of Daily Echo rather than the yeah, New York Times. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's kind of community newspaper, and I was rather 
rather stupid and imagined to myself that they would just be proud that I'd published a novel. But of course, no, they don't like it up and. It's from it's from Dad's army. Yes, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking of lesbianism again. <laughs> <laughs> You're just thinking of lesbianism constantly. Yeah. <laughs> when you say it, I don't like it up, I get confused. Uh, okay, here we go. Naomi Alderman deserves our sympathy. It's her publishers who must shoulder the blame for thrusting her into a limelight for which she is clearly not ready, merely in order to jump on a trendy ethnic literary bandwagon. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Do you know the worst thing, vicious, the worst vicious. thing is that you've remembered it word for word? Yeah. That breaks my heart. <laughs> you know it so well. I'm you must really, have read it a million times. I, yeah, I, I, I read it and I had proper depression for a couple of weeks afterwards. Mm-hmm. And like, this is why I, again, I can't read them now. I, you know, I read the good ones. And like, and like the, you know, there's like a part of me that thinks, oh, but I should be really honest with myself and read the bad ones too. And I think, no... The whole point of human yeah. beings is that we function much better in an atmosphere of optimism. Yeah. You know, sometimes slightly over-realistic optimism. I'm a I'm on comics. Do you read comics? No, not, not as an adult. I feel like I should, but I don't. Mm. Do you, is it because you... Can't you don't know how to? Because I, I this is a problem I have with comics. I don't know how to read them. I, I don't know how long I'm supposed to look at each picture for. It's like being in an art gallery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just paralysed by the idea of doing something wrong. One minute per page, three seconds. Yeah, per I need, I need a sort of an egg timer or an alarm clock or something telling me that's how long to. That's the problem I have. Literally, I don't know how long I'm supposed to look because the artwork obviously takes people days to do each frame. Or so yeah, you, know. you should you should be paying mm. a lot of attention to it. I don't own an iPhone. How's that? That's good. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I'm I, thinking I about an iPad, but I don't yeah. don't know what I'd use it for other right. than having one, which yeah. would be nice. Um, but you do have two phones, like a drug dealer or a pimp or something. <laughs> I do have just like a drug dealer or a pimp, <laughs> or like somebody whose work gives them a phone, which has got access mm. to email and calendar, right? And who already had a phone mm. on which I send text messages and make phone calls I mean that it's surely okay. it's not unusual no that's fair surely enough. in the UK a lot of people have two phones yeah, not just pimps and drug dealers <laughs> you're um, a big Coen Brothers fan I don't know if I've seen I must have seen some of that you must have seen the, 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 the Big Lebowski uh, yeah, I've seen it like once, and I sort of thought it was a bit annoying. And uh, you have that to watch it again. Bowling. Yeah, you have to watch it again. Yeah, it seems to be like one of those cult things mm. that people become really into. Yeah, you those. can't judge it on one watching. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's worth becoming a a cult follower of you know dudedom and becoming okay. a dudism or whatever it's called. Yeah. You know, wearing the the dressing gown. Oh, they have conventions. And oh stuff. yeah, 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 big time. Slightly exclusively to shift round stop, at least mm. at least for the next few days. Uh, there is actually a game, or a sort of. The amazingly talented designer Jay Bidolf and I have created, sponsored by uh, Book Trust, a short story that is in the form of a game. Mm. So it's completely linear. In the sense that, you know, it doesn't have one of those branching narratives that a game has. Actually, you just play straight through it. But it takes advantage of all of game-like features. So there are things you can click on and move and pick up and put down. And I think it's beautiful. You can look at it at www.thewinterhouse.co.uk. 
and it is sort of loosely tied to the novel because it takes place in the same house as the lessons, okay. but a hundred years earlier. Shares yeah. the universe. Of, Shares of the, the universe. The I have this terrible feeling that. The people who are going to make really amazing stories for games are probably people who are about three years old right now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there is a problem with stories for games. Even games that people say, oh, it has an amazing story, it's an amazing story, tend to just be... The stories tend to be not as good as just good movies that you've seen or mm. books that you've read. Mm. Stories are kind of often bolted into games. Mm. Um, and games designers don't do a great job of kind of telling stories through the gameplay. Mm. Is that something that you're think, thinking about a lot? Yeah, more? I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely true. And part of what we were trying to do with The Winter House was just to see how you could use that, the, 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 the beautiful visuals of a, of a really lovely game, um, but, but to try to tell a good story with it. And, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, of course there are some really great writers working in games. There really are, and obviously Rihanna Pratchett is one, uh, and, there, and there are many others. But... My impression is that a lot of games, a lot of games writers, kind of mostly are doing the writing in addition to also being a coder. Mm. Um, Not to say that you have to be a professional writer in order to write something, but I I do think there's that sense that it's very much not even second on the list, it's about fifth or sixth on the list after you've dealt with... Um, gameplay and you've dealt with puzzle design and you've dealt with graphics and you've dealt with audio and you know all that's great and, and the game is basically made and you kind of know it's a war game <laughs> and then you bring someone in to go oh do us some cutscenes. Do you think there's also uh, an equivalent problem of writers not knowing about games and not uh, having yeah. the conventions and the, the vernacular of, of games? I think that's absolutely true um, and I, I think <laughs> carving myself out a nice little niche as somebody who goes to literary organisations and tells them not to be f- afraid of computers Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, I, but I really, uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think a lot of writers, well, why would you become a writer if you hadn't had your life changed by a book at some point? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's why we do it, because we know everybody wants to touch the world in, the way, in a way that they themselves were touched at some point. But I think there are a lot of writers who are really very, almost superstitiously attached to that particular form of storytelling, even the physical object. Actually, the written word as the paradigm for storytelling is very new. You know, we've had, what, since since Caxton, um, we've had a period of time where people could produce a story and, and send it out to people with no possibility of revising it. You know, it's just there. And then the audience have to take it in without any possibility of going back and talking to the author about it. And so the author is sort of on a pedestal and the readers are somewhere below and you're kind of throwing down your work to them and... Uh, they don't get to respond. And that's all changing now in various different ways. I mean, it's pretty easy to reach your favourite author now mm. and tell them what you think. It's pretty easy to go on and comment on the, on a newspaper article that you read. Mm. And it's, yeah, we, and, and it's pretty easy as, as an author to talk to your audience. And do you think authors want that? Do you think a lot of authors no, I don't are think they do. hankering after the days of being back on the pedestal? Yeah, absolutely. I think most authors want to be on the pedestal. Mm. And, yeah, it's a bit mucky down there. And, you know, you, someone can say to you, I didn't like this about your story. And you kind of don't get to not to just go, what are you, a pleb? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the terrible, evil truth of it is that I don't believe in crowdsourced stories in the sense that, um, you know how they're always like those experiments in TV every few years where people try and get people to vote on the next episode. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's always rubbish. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> people did it a lot in the 80s I seem to remember there were like a few mm. t- kids TV shows in the yeah, 80s I remember that watching one actually them. yeah yeah can't trust the public you can't trust the public it's you certainly can't they don't know what they want no they don't know what they want they want something but 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 there's another model of it which is more like the writer is a curator Mm. which so, is more like your role in Perplex City yeah absolutely mm. which was an alternate reality game as far as I'm aware it's still the longest running alternate reality game ever uh, it ran for three and a half years when I arrived they told me it was going to run for nine months <laughs> um, and that was absolutely an exercise in learning to let go control of my story you realise that in that in that situation you're not telling a story to your players uh, so much as creating a story with them people throw you suggestions and you get to choose which, one you, which ones you take mm. but then you give credit you know we used to always in perfect to give a shout out to somebody who had kind of come up with something cool that they'd emailed us and gone why doesn't Violet go and look at this and we went oh that's a really good mm. idea we can get a whole three week story out of it mm. so we would always give a shout out back and then that made the, they, those people feel great right. were you the only writer no. as part of that project there were a few more there were a few yeah we had um, yeah we worked with an incredibly talented bunch of people who've gone, gone on to do amazing things so um, Adrian Hon who Mm. now co-founder of Six to Start was the uh, the head game designer so he would mostly I, I was the lead writer and, and, and in terms of like broad arc he and I would sit down together and go wouldn't it be cool if we did a puzzle and we would kind of work that together and that's where it really you know that's the sweet spot at the point where you're just kind of sitting in a room together chatting going yeah this and then this and then this and maybe that could work um, we had an amazing writer, Andrea Phillips, who did. Uh, she was she was mostly in charge of the Sentinel, which was our newspaper, a pretty kind of full on three thousand word <laughs> newspaper twice a week <laughs> for, of imaginary huge news. Project, yeah. Huge, because you know sometimes it would be news related to the story, but sometimes there wasn't anything particular. So she kind of invented these amazing things. There was a, a, a there was a pop bands in perplexity, and, t- and one one of them was having an affair with someone from another band, and you know these people all still feel really real to me the players must have been reading this stuff obsessively because yeah. clues could have been hidden anywhere absolutely absolutely so you never as, as a novelist you never get that level of attention played, paid to your work mm. uh, so uh, we also worked with um, David Varela who's uh, he's, he had come from a radio background and now he's working he's writing games for um, uh, PlayStation Home okay. and Jay Bidoff was our, was our erstwhile very hard working uh, designer so yeah, that was it. Was so it was a small team, and uh, I was sort of in charge of the story arc. But then people had their individual characters that they would most often write. I wrote Violet, who was the the, the sort of heroine. Yeah. David wrote the very funny. Um, he's he's just he's just an annoyingly funny writer. It's really it, 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 I don't know if in your jobs you have this, but just writing envy, where you really envy somebody else's writing talent. You go, I, yeah, I know, very talented. Yes, yeah, so bloody talented. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so we'd all write our individual characters, um, and I think I think that helped keep the voices feeling fresh mm. as well. Mm. Um, yeah, what else was I going to say about Perfect City? I can't remember. I have a thing to say about Perfect, yeah. Perfect City for anyone uh, who has heard of this and, and hasn't seen any of the cards because there were there were a lot of puzzle cards yes. that were part of the game. Uh, I have a box of them. I have a Ooh. box of unopened puzzle cards in my house. Really, I would give away for everyone who buys a tape this week I will give you a pack of unopened perplexity puzzle cards wow. which are presumably becoming collectible with deal. time oh yes they're increasingly collectible as time goes on I have a full set of course nice I have nearly a full set for those of us who haven't played can we um, 
Can you explain what the cards are for? Because it was a huge deal, wasn't it? And there, and there were loads of cards, and they were really um, elaborately illustrated with bits yeah. of map. Yeah, yeah, map on the back. Map. If you put all the cards together, all the backs of all the cards together, mm. you would get a full map of the city, which was beautiful, absolutely beautiful object. That's amazing. So the idea is to collect them all so you can see the whole city yes. sort of thing. Yeah, they were, the cards were our revenue stream in mm. the sense of people who are interested in gaming might be interested to know how we actually made our money uh-huh, right. um, and they were also uh, some of them ended up having clues in them that related to finding the treasure Right. so there was a treasure buried uh, somebody did find it we did give him £100,000 it was all very exciting <gasps> wow yeah. that's amazing like masquerade or yeah something. exactly well, mas- do you know how I got involved in this Shall I tell you the ridiculous yes. story of how I got involved in Please this? Please do. So, so obviously I was always interested in gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been a role-playing gamer for a long time. And I think role-playing games are like the absolute perfect background to produce an ARG from because um, you have that sense of making a story all together. Uh, anyway, this is what happened. This, I, I had, I'd, I'd done my Masters in Creative Writing and I was working on my serious novel. Mm. I was about to email a friend to say, what time shall I come over for supper tomorrow? Um, and I looked at my email sig. Do you remember email sig? I yeah. do, yeah. Yeah, I remember. They, still, they live on in uh, in IMDb bulletin board things. Everybody's got one. If you read like, the comments on the bulletin boards, they've all got them on the IMDb. Anyway, <laughs> It was kind of before Skype, so before you could just have a little... Or before, you know, Facebook status mm. updates about me. Mm. So you could have just some little thing. And, like, it was really cool for about six months in about <laughs> 2003. You know? <laughs> Uh, history. So anyway, this was 2004, so I was already passe. Um, but I, I, I was about to email my friend, and I looked at my email sig, and I thought, this is really boring. And I spent two hours trying to find a new one for it, which is the kind of attention you paid, or at least I paid. And at the, at the whole time going, I should be really working, but instead I'm doing this. And eventually I decided on a quote from Masquerade, mm-hmm. which I had this, uh, this treasure hunt book that I'd loved when I was a child. And I put, I put this at the bottom, and I emailed my friend and said, what time shall I come for supper? And he emailed back instantly and said, oh, my God, do you like Masquerade? If so, I met someone at a party last night who's looking for a writer. You really have to talk to him. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's an amazing amazing coincidence. (laughs) Sometimes your life just comes and knocks on the door and goes here. And I heard about this thing and I was like, "Okay, yes, that is what I want to do. I didn't Mm. know that that was the name for it. But there you go. That's what I want to do. So Jeff Bridges wears... A dressing gown for the whole film or a lot of it? Yeah, pretty much the whole film, yeah. I'm, I think I'm the quite, whole film. I'm quite interested in the concept of characters in films who wear nightwear a lot. And what and is there an mm. essay in this? Because obviously there's the thing with Arthur Dent in Hitchhiker, he's experiences yeah, the whole adventure in his pajamas. Yeah. Um, but also have you ever watched Jim Carrey films? And I'm quite upset I sort of collect these. You collect Jim Carrey films? Well, I collect Jim Carrey Jim Carrey films with where he wears pajamas in them. Because it's Almost all of them. Do you collect them on DVD or do you collect uh, the memory of them? No, I collect pictures of them in a folder on my desktop. <laughs> What's the folder <laughs> with called? With a view. I don't know, Jim Carrey Pajama Project or something? Because I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to work. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any other projects on your desktop? <laughs> this, is the, this is the main one. <laughs> this is the main one. I'm so glad this came up. Um, <laughs> this is just the best one of all this of them. Is the be- well, I feel like it's got the potential to be a, an amazing revelation. Blog post? There's certainly a blog post in it. There's at least a blog post in it, isn't there? I mean, it's like about a boy all over again. It's finding a thing in a film. <laughs> and then... But so many Jim Carrey films, he wears pajamas. Okay, so mask? Yes, definitely. Right. Uh, I'm saying that, I, I can't, I'm not really I sure. That might be one of the ones where he doesn't. Um, 
Uh, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, definitely. Definitely, yes. Truman Show, definitely. Yep. Yes Man, I think he does, yes. Uh, Fun with Dick and Jane, yes. Wow, this is quite a big collection you've got. Uh, it's quite a few, he's done quite a few films. But he does, <laughs> there's something he doesn't, which might even be a theory in itself, like the odd-numbered Star Trek films or whatever. <laughs> I've been a Doctor Who fan since forever and ever and ever. I mean, really. You know, my mother sat me down in front of Doctor Who when I was about four years old and said, this is good, watch this. Her father had been a Doctor Who fan. Wow, it's, brilliant. It's in my blood. It's my <laughs> heritage. And, yeah, as a teenager, um, yeah, instead of going out and meeting boys... <laughs> but, yes, I watched a lot of Doctor Who. There was a time when I could name all the companions in order wow. from the start. But like I a walking Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> There is a really good Wikipedia page, actually. Of course there is, yeah. And pictures of all of them, like, in a yeah. massive grid or It's something. weird. There are some things that Wikipedia does quite badly. Yes. Like, the arts. Yeah. And there's some things, like Doctor Who. Doctor Who is a modern myth. I would defend Doctor Who as being a serious artistic creation. It's not just a, a science fiction story. There's something very important about... The fact that he's immortal. Mm. It's, you know, he draws on those kind of ancient... sort of archetype or something. Yeah, Mm. he really is. He's, he's, and he's a very British archetype. He's an Mm. amateur. He's a bumbling amateur who wanders around the universe trying to do a bit of good. Mm. Um, As opposed to, you know, the Star Trek, which is the American equivalent of Doctor Who with that kind of long-running nature, which is about joining the army. Yeah. Where you have to join the army in order to... You know, go out and explore the world. Yeah. That's the it's only a way to do it. Militaristic future, yeah. rather than one with individuality and exactly. eccentricities. Yeah, individuality, eccentricities, and and that sense of yeah, trying to do to help without having full information necessarily, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, just dragging along whoever you kind of like or fancy <laughs> with you. <laughs> I mean, and it's so British, you know, he calls himself the doctor and he travels in a police box. He's really, like, images of kind of authority and caring authority in 1960s-style way, but also very subversive. There seems to be a thing now that every episode has to be about saving the world, which I find a little bit disappointing because Mm. it kind of takes the edge off the big Christmas specials and the Easter Mm. ones and stuff because, like, every single time it's like, if I don't do this, the world will explode and everyone will die, the human race will die. It's like, well... He's spending so much more time on Earth now than he ever Mm. did in the past. In the past, it was always about, you know, well, let's go off and explore this weird planet and let's go to this strange floating spaceship. And they do that a bit. But even, I mean, yeah, the past couple have been... Obviously, the new Stephen Moffat ones, Mm. they've both been on Earth. Well, the, the, the second one, was it called The Beast Below? Yes. Uh, it wasn't really on Earth, it was on a spaceship that was yeah. the United Kingdom. <laughs> but it's still about saving the human race. Oh, it's absolutely yeah. about saving not only the human race, but the British. British. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about saving the British. <laughs> and no, no, not even the British, the English. Not even no. the English, the Jewish. No, <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm so excited. Honestly, like, I don't care what each Doctor Who episode is like. The fact that there is Doctor Who, new Doctor Who being made mm. now, just, it, it just pleases me down to the very depths does of my ever, soul. Does it ever, as, a, as a big Doctor Who fan, does it ever worry you? Do you ever think, oh, God, maybe there'll be a bad one? Because like, I remember when they made the new Red Dwarf and that. Cause I was, oh! I the Red Dwarf then, Yeah. And I was, I was mainly worried. I'm really um, sorry. I was excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I stopped watching it after Series 6 anyway, so I'd, I've seen them, all the rest once, and I've seen all the others like I watch them almost um, every night mm-hmm. but, the, but the new ones <laughs> back when they were good the first six yeah, series the first, was yeah, the first first, especially yeah. the first four really the, the, no yeah. no season five was the best oh. season five red dwarf formulaic, formulaic no season five <laughs> <laughs> season five 
had Back to Reality, which was the best episode That's they true. ever okay, did. Okay, it's that was when episode. it stopped being. So, so yeah. six was when it started getting formulaic. Yes. And the jokes yes, started yes, becoming. Yes, yes. Cool I don't know, Gunmen in the Apocalypse, most pop, loads of awards, uh, you know. Yeah. Series seven, eight, just rubbish. rubbish but anyway, nine. Nine. Was after Craig nine. Charles got sent to prison, I mean, he did. Oh, was, yeah. yeah, what the hell was going on there? And yeah. they, they resurrected the rest of the queue yeah. and he wasn't the last guy alive anymore. Yeah, it was weird. It was just weird, yeah. But, anyway. but Back to Reality, one of the finest half hours of television ever made. That was good. Yeah, yes. I liked that one. So clever. Still know it's anyway. off by heart. <laughs> Rimmer was oh. always the hero of that show. The show was He's always amazing. about Rimmer. Chris Barry is like such a good performer as yeah. well. And you watch them now and you go, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Because you know, at the time when you're a kid, you're thinking, this is rubbish. He's really annoying and I hate yeah. him and I really want Lister to win. But when you watch them back, he's like, nah, Rimmer's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is really interesting because Lister obviously has like the, like, you know, he's, he's the guy that you would want to kind of go out to the pub with. Mm. But actually, he's the straight man. Mm. And Rimmer is all the comedy and all the tragedy is all about how terrible his life and we all kind of feel like that we all have the inner mm. rimmer which <laughs> so to speak <laughs> what were we talking about something there I can't I'm on the We're back with the snacks. What and seem to be the puddings. We had a fair guess at what we thought were the savoury yeah. courses and uh, with, uh, with, with moderate success. And now, and this looks like... It's a sort of fruity stick. It's like it, a fruit pepperoni. <laughs> despite its... Uh, its uh, superficial similarity to pepperoni. I'm just reading the English on the back of the packet. It says, enjoying method, colon, taken directly. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Have you seen what it says in the front, though? Uh, it says, whore fruit, living life to the full. I have my choice of delicious. Whore fruit. Now, I want to be careful on the pronunciation here. It's not whore, like... It's not the fruit of whore's loins. No, <laughs> this is whore, H-A-W. Tear a bit off. It smells a bit like a dried fruit sort of stick you might get in Holland and Barrett or something. It's got a slightly bitter aftertaste yeah. that I'm quite enjoying. And uh, and as you say, these um mm. these these dried fruit products are are increasingly popular over here. Mm. Yeah. And uh, now now we're on slightly more familiar territory. This appears to be a Kit Kat. Let, let's pop this open. Oh, it's not. <laughs> so we've got a chocolate yeah, bar here. It looks yeah. like a crunch bar or something. Yeah, it's rice with with with, with crispy rice. So yeah, mm. this is like um. A Nestle Crunch. It says Dove on it, which is, I think, the international name for, for Galaxy. Mm. Oh, and right. the chocolate's really good. Very nice. And mm. it's quite it's quite like a Galaxy. It's, it's like a slightly galaxy. darker Galaxy. Mm. Mm. I can nice. imagine that being made to a similar recipe. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's two thumbs up for that. We, we don't know what it's called in English, though, do we? It's just sort of a... It's, it's got a red packet a red. like a Kit Kat. And a word, um, a Chinese word on it. Explosion of Chinese literature. And colon 40. Um, so, yeah, thumbs up for that. We've also got a couple of, um, of Cadbury's products. This one, again, doesn't have uh, an English name, so we're not going to attempt to pronounce it. It looks like Cadbury's China have, uh, have made, made an, an attempt on the Rolo. It looks a lot like a Rolo from the front. Mm. Let's see, let's see if I can get these. Oh, they're individually wrapped. It's, so, not, it's not a tube, oh, no. though. It's kind of like a, you get a flake in or something. Oh, and there's a, there's a wrap inside. Oh, mm-hmm. it's double wrapped. So, so I think these are either toffee inside or maybe some Ooh. other sort of eclair. They look just like Rolos, don't they? They're slightly smaller than Rolos. They've got a Cadbury swirl on them. Oh, yeah, or eclairs, I suppose. Got and they're not... They don't have a chewy mm. caramel in. They've got a so, solid mm. chocolate... I'm going to stick my neck out here. It's not Cadbury's chocolate. I'm not sure about this Cadbury's chocolate. It's, uh, it's got a funny aftertaste as well, hasn't it? It's got, it's it's got, it's got the, um, the, glass, the glass and a half symbol. It's not um, dairy milk, is it? It's, you know, it's not the dairy milk we're used to. Perhaps our decadent Western tastes. Mm. This one 
This one ha- does have an English word on oh, it. Oh, hurrah. Sorry, this is another This is another packet. This is the Cadbury's Chockfuls. Mm. And, um, is that a thing that you can get in the UK? No. I'm sure I've heard no, of a no, Chockful. Again, it, look, it looks like those kind of Werther's Originals in that there's, it looks mm. like there's a, com- I mean, there's a caramel outside mm. or solid, maybe boiled sweet outside and the kind of... A bit like a Cadbury's chocolate eclair. Liquid on the inside. Yeah. I think with the, oh, too right. much wrapping. So much packaging on these things. It's no wonder they're creating a new power station every look, day. And then they're individually wrapped inside oh, the chair. Oh, triple wrapped. What are they so worried about? And it is, it does look like a coffee. This is like a Werther's, yeah. Oh. Oh, crikey. That's yeah. crunchy. Oh. Crunchy toffee with a sort of dried chocolate powder inside. Yeah, imagine a Werther's original with a dried out bit of chocolate inside it. Quite nice though. Chocolate filled hard candy. So I could survive on those in an, in, a, in an unfamiliar shopping environment. And then finally, and I, I've saved these till last because they've got the funniest name. <laughs> Carefully selected quality materials plus elaborate processing bring you and your family the warmth and sweetness of the jizzy cake. <laughs> and um, and I assume, I assume that's why Liam selected these. But he's, he's, he's extracting some sort of comedy like uh, Carry On. Double entendre. Oh, that's quite a lot of them in there. It's, it's, it's a big sort of Christmas box, <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> 17 layers of wrapping on it again. Oh, man. Um, it is like a double. Yeah, each cake is individually wrapped in a little foil uh, sheath. To, to be honest, they, 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 <laughs> like sheath. They, look like, they look like Maryland cookies. I'm hoping they're Maryland cookies, although it's not clear. Oh, look. Are those... Look I'd at the cookie might goodness. Meat. They might be duck tongues in there. It's, yeah. young. it's a kind of glazed... Um, oh, it looks quite handmade, actually. Mm, glazed uh, biscuity thing. It smells like a like a samosa. Oh, oh right. So, 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 so th- this. I thought it was going to be a cake. This, this, this might be this might be a rogue savoury that's, uh, that's escaped it into it our pudding see, course. Yeah, like you say, it does sell, smell like it's a got a certain. Samosa. Ju- I mean, I haven't, but who's going to be first to taste them? <laughs> <can't> <laughs> okay, I'm going for it. Oh, Ruth. Oh, it does have a curry kind of. And we mm. assume these were desserts. Hmm. Is it, it, is, curry it is sweet, but it's got um, maybe like a sort of cardamomy type thing going on. It's exactly in the middle between a sweet food and a savoury food. It's both at once. It's almost like a fortune cookie, but with mm. like samosa inside or something, isn't it? So, like, so, so the ingredients, and I, I don't know if they order the ingredients at, like um, in, in order of magnitude, like like uh, like they do here. <laughs> but it's it's granulated sugar, wheat flour, spring onions, <laughs> <laughs> maltose. Fermented red bean curd. I assume that's fermented red bean curd. Cake powder. Powder. Edible vegetable oil. Eggs. Sesame. Sesame oil. Salt. Leavening agent. Flavouring. So definitely a sweet. Uh, a sweet then, 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 like, many more interesting details. Processing way. Thermal processing. <laughs> so thermal I, process. I, I don't know. Wow. Uh, Old fashioned. Like Western categories of savoury and sweet mm. break down mm. when fa- when faced with uh, with with other cuisines, and uh, it's a little bit like I don't know if you ever go to the um, the Chinese donut shops in Chinatown here in London. I don't. Sometimes you'll pick something that looks like a beautiful sort of like sugar covered uh, deep deep fried donut, and that's exactly what it is. But they they fry it in chicken fat, so it also and no, and so consequently it also tastes very strongly of fried chicken. And I assume that's deliberate. So Naomi is going to read to us a bit of her new book, The Lessons, very kindly. So this is a, a Naomi 
reading exclusive. <laughs> this is the first time I've read this bit in public ever, I think. Um, so this is this is a part where, uh, just to explain, there's a group of friends who are having a picnic uh, by a river. Um, one of them has brought her younger brother, Leo, along with, and he's about four years old. Leo stretched out his arms, T-shirt riding up, and hauled himself a little higher in the tree. I'm a monkey, he said again. You can't catch me. He threw another handful of leaves and twigs. A few of the pieces were quite large and heavy. They scattered dryly on the baked earth. Don't do that, Leo, said Jess. You might really hurt someone. Time to come down now, Leo, said Nicola. He had climbed up higher than we realised, higher than any of us could reach without climbing ourselves. Leo threw down another heavy handful of leaves and twigs and bark. Ook, ook, he said. Ook, ook. I'm the monkey and you're all the other animals in the jungle and the monkey is the naughty one. He was bouncing up and down, obviously excited to be out of our reach. He threw more leaves, two handfuls this time, and as he hurled them, palms splayed open like starfish. He lost his balance, rocked backward on the branch, seemed about to fall, then clutched at the branch above and steadied himself. He was unafraid, but we became quiet. Come on, said Nicola, making her voice serious. Enough of this game. Come down, Leo. Come down now, please. Yes, said Simon, shading his eyes from the sun with his forearm. Come down or I'll come up there and get you myself. Leo squirmed and wriggled out further along the branch. Oh, come on, Leo, said Simon. Oh, I'll just have to shake you out of the tree. Leo squeaked indignantly and climbed another few inches along the branch out over the river. For goodness sake, Leo, said Nicola, you're going to have to... And there was a sudden crack. The bow did not break, but bent like a spring, and Leo jolted forward and reached his arms out to steady himself. And as he reached, the branch sprang again, past the stronger supporting branches it had rested on, and, head over foot, arms outstretched, spinning like an acrobat, Leo fell. While he tumbled, it was comical. His little mouth was as round as an O, his eyebrows raised, his hands still reaching out. For a brief flash of time, it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And then he hit the water and screamed, and sound and colour returned to the world. His head went down to the surface. I couldn't see him. I looked at the place he had vanished for the space of a heartbeat. Two, three, and then he reappeared, struggling, gasping, several feet away from the bank, much further out than he'd fallen in. This might be our last week of our, of our sponsorship. Yes, sad in a way, sad. to say goodbye. Say goodbye so. to our sponsor, audible.co.uk, yeah. who for the last few weeks have been offering, and up until the end of this week, I think, mm-hmm. will be offering free trial membership of Audible for two weeks, uh, which means you can download a free audiobook. And, best of all, Shiffer and Stop gets a little bit of money for each person who signs up. So um, if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, and, you, and you'd like to, uh, then now's your chance. Go to shiftrunstop.co.uk slash books. Go and have a look. They've got loads of titles and there's bound to be something that you can idly listen to without actually having to use your eyes to read the words. I've been listening to No Country for Old Men. Oh, yeah. That's right. Good. Yeah, is, really it, good. Is, it, is it like the film? I haven't uh, seen the film. Well. It's quite a lot like the film. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's like the film, but there are fewer pictures. Of course. It's just... <laughs> of course, it's not exactly like the film. <laughs> exactly. It's not even like the audio film. It's actually somebody reading the book to you. It's more like the book. Right, yeah. it's much more like the audio book yeah. than anything else. And um, thank you all for your um, your iTunes reviews. Oh, yeah. It's been nice seeing people, really nice. St- people still finding us, people still yeah. reviewing it. 
Yeah, thanks for the donation. We had a donation <coughs> yesterday from Phil Simmons, I think, yes. in Sydney. He was all the way in Sydney, and uh, just yesterday he went uh, he went out in Sydney, or mm. around Sydney, and uh, he saw an echidna, which mm. is exciting. You don't get to see that every day, do you? Not, not in Britain, certainly. Do you know what, do you know what an echidna yeah, is? Yeah, it's a spiny anteater. Quite cute looking. Yeah, quite cute, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Phil saw one in the in the wild, I think, which is exciting. Mm. Unless he went to a zoo. He said he was bushwalking, I think. Oh. That's amazing, though. I'd love to live in Sydney. Is that different to bushwhacking, do you think? Bush? I don't know what bushwhacking is. I don't know, but it sounds good, doesn't bushwhacker, it? Bushwhacker, like Bushwhacker Dave is his name? <laughs> bushwhacker Dave. Bushwhacker, that, that TV show that was on... It's BBC. definitely a word. I think it means you're tired. Oh. Because they say I'm bushed as well, don't they? They do, I'm bushed. Naomi Alderman, famous author of two books and writer of games and maker of cool things, thank you for joining us today. It's been my immense pleasure. I'm so looking forward to hearing myself. (laughs) (laughs) And we're looking forward to hearing your book on Book of Bedtime. That's going to be great. It started on Monday, but it's all available on Listen Again this week. So, yes. But it's only 20,000 words of it. So if you like it, then you have to go and buy the book in order to get the other missing 60,000 words. (laughs) It's like a perplexity all over again. I'm making a key to the world. Bye! That's really, really, really cool. <laughs>